You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. So this morning we are going to be in Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 26. If you have a Bible with you, go ahead and turn there with me. If you don't have one, there should be one underneath a seat in front of you. And if you do not own a copy of the scriptures in your home, please take that with you as a gift from us today. We would love for you to have God's word in your house. So if you're able, please go ahead and stand for the reading of God's word. Again, this is Romans chapter 8, verse 26 to 27. Hear the word of the Lord. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Y'all can be seated. Good morning. How are y'all doing? It is, a, it is a, such a joy to be able to look at all of your wonderful faces. And for those faces that are online, I can't look at yours, but I'm sure it's wonderful. Um, I'm sure you're a lot more comfortable than we are here, Uh, but nonetheless, uh, it is my joy to be able to bring the Word of God to you this morning, and and I hope it is also a joy for you. Uh, So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray for us, and then we will get started and jump right into God's Word. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we we lift you up this morning. Uh, You are the most important thing in our life right now. Nothing else matters. Uh, God, we we don't check our worries or weaknesses at the door, but instead we lay them before you. Uh, We submit them before our good Father, our great King who can care for us in the best way. We submit to you them this morning. And God, we pray that you would give us peace and understanding. And uh, God, as we uh, dive into your word, may it be an anchor to our soul and a light unto our feet. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so there's a story in the Bible that has always baffled me. It's not baffled me because it's unique. In fact, it's one of the more popular stories. Uh, it's the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Um, I, I, I love the story, but it's always thrown me for a loop, and it's because of the different circumstances surrounding what's happening there. The, the first one is that Jesus hears about one of his good friends, Lazarus, who is also the brother of Mary and Martha, and he hears about him getting sick and then die and then on his way to death and doesn't do anything though. He doesn't do anything. In fact, he just says, oh, well, that's great to hear. I'll be by later. And later meaning he doesn't leave for another two more days. And by the time he arrives, Lazarus has been in the grave for four days. So obviously there was some kind of intentionality that happened behind Jesus waiting. And it, it baffles me because even a moment, even a moment in the shoes of Mary and Martha, it overwhelms me. It overwhelms me knowing that there could have been something done earlier, that Lazarus could have been saved, it, at least in their shoes. We obviously know the end of the story. Jesus arrives on the scene, says everything's going to be great. He weeps along Mary and Martha, and then he calls Lazarus out of the tomb. We know that takes place, but for Mary and Martha in that moment, we know at least that she's frustrated. We know that because she, she walks up to Jesus when he gets there and says, well, he wouldn't be dead if he had showed up earlier. So she's at least frustrated, if nothing else. But a moment in those shoes, it overwhelms me with, 
uh, with the same kind of fear that I'm sure they experienced. And I know this because there's a story with, with my son where I felt something similar. Uh, I remember this was uh, a couple years ago. My, so my son, uh, he struggles and suffers from uh, acute onset asthma, which basically just means he doesn't have asthma running around and playing with his friends, nothing like that. But when he gets sick, whether it's a runny nose, whether it's a cough, whatever it may be, it quickly onsets. And his throat starts to swell, his lungs inflame, he can't really breathe, you can see his ribs. It's a really scary thing for a parent, um, but it happens every now and then. And by the grace of God, it, has, it hasn't happened in a while, but the last time it did, I'll never forget it, uh, because it was uh, arguably the worst. And so I remember things started to happen, he had his runny nose, his throat started to swell, he was coughing really hard, things like that. And normally for us, we would just take him to the doctor, they would give him his nebulizer, he'd be fine, he'd come back in four hours and we'd be you know, $800 poorer because of it. But at the end of the, on this day, it was different. I remember he was gone. Um, Megan had taken him to the doctor and it had been about four hours. I was wondering where they were and she gives me a call and I'm expecting her to tell me I'm just on my way home. But she, instead she says, we're actually gonna have to rush him to an emergency room because his breathing has dropped so low that he's starting to change color. And I remember like, I remember my heart in that moment just sinking I remember not knowing what to do. I remember weakness. I remember feeling out of control as a father. But, but I, here's one thing I didn't do. I didn't say, hey, you know what? Let me, uh, let me finish this round of golf and I'll be there in a little bit. <laughs> I can tell you what I didn't do. I didn't say, you know what, babe? I'll, I need to finish this episode of The Office. It's riveting. <laughs> and I'll be, there. I'll be there soon. I didn't do that. I didn't take this casual approach to sin, suffering, and weakness inside of my own personal experience. I didn't take this casual nature to it the way Jesus did. The issue, though, is that Jesus, in the story of Lazarus, seemed very content, very content in waiting, content in allowing weakness to be exposed in the disciples, weakness to be exposed in the life of Mary and Martha. And it's this type of weakness that is the foundation that runs through this entire text that we're going to be discussing this morning. It underlines the very hope that we have in the gospel and the Lord drawing us to himself. That in our weakness, we are never alone. And so there's much more than what I'm about to name in this text. I mean, God's word is, um, has, no, has no bottom. Uh, it's forever deep and we could dive into it all the day long. But for this morning, for this purposes, there are three things that I think we can, we can learn from this text. And the first point is this, that in our weakness, we have help. So we, before we actually get into verse number 26, we need to look at this in the context of verses 18 through 25, which Court and Eric faithfully preached in the weeks prior. And what we learned in verses 18 through 25 is that there's this global macro view of suffering that's taken place and that one day God's going to redeem it. That one day God's going to renovate and restore not only our souls, not only our bodies, but the entire known and unknown universe. That all will be made right. Justice will be done. Eden will be restored and we will walk freely with God once again like we did in the beginning. No longer will we see through the glass dimly, but God's going to restore it. We get this gigantic 30,000 foot up view from suffering and restoration that's going to take place. But in the direct next verse, in verse 26, it says this, likewise, likewise. So just like we just saw God's going to restore the earth and all of creation, both what we know and what we don't know, likewise, the spirit helps us in our weakness. So in other words, it gets even better. That 
we get this gigantic view of restoration that's going to take place in all of creation. But in verse number 26, we learn that that kind of help that the Spirit gives us is also going to be walking alongside us in every single area of our life. So not only is God immensely aware of the need to restore the earth, but he, is also, he also immensely cares about your soul on a granular level. That up until this point, Paul had talked about uh, suffering and sin and weakness in the world. And I believe that's what he's referring to whenever he's talking about this weakness. But he could also be talking about a cognitive weakness that, weakness that we just do not have. That there's a vantage point that God has that we don't. God knows things that we don't know. God is omniscient. He is le- legitimately all-knowing, all-wise, in, sa- in similar ways that parents are to children. Like, I'm never going to ask, I guess, for example, I'm never going to ask my son for, uh, for, you know, wise advice on how to diversify my portfolio for my retirement account. Never going to do that because he can't guide me in that direction, right? He has zero experience. He doesn't have the vantage point that I have. He doesn't know what it means. If I ask my daughter what it means to, to diversify a portfolio, she's going to go, portfolio, what is that? Is that a Shopkin? Can you buy it for me? It's a, that, that's what I'm going to get. It's not going to be this, like, exuberant amount of information on how I can, you know, be wealthier later. My, my children don't have the same kind of vantage point that I do in my life at 32 years old when they're uh, seven and five. In the same way, we don't have a vantage point that God does being outside of time, all knowing and all wise and all powerful. So really, at the end of the day, what that means for us is that we don't know what is best for us the way that God does. God knows what is best for us because he knows all. He knows all that will happen. He he knows all that will take place, both that has and both that will. The problem is, is that whenever we view this in light of this weakness, this cognitive and physical weakness that we have, that there's a deficiency between us and God. When we look at this and the way that we experience it in our life is we try to get rid of weakness at every means possible. That's usually the way that this plays out. Weakness is not something that we, that we ever really sit in. In fact, I remember very, uh, uh, very distinctly in Splendor whenever I played football, uh, in the locker room whenever we would work out, there was this poster that was always there, and we would always rib each other about it uh, whenever somebody would complain. But it would say, pain is weakness leaving the body. It's because this idea that if you, know, if, if you were a real man, you would go into that locker room, get all the girl out of you, and then become stronger, bigger, faster, and then you could go into the world and, and conquer it. That was the idea, because pain is weakness leaving the body. But the truth is, is that Jesus, as we mentioned earlier, seems content with allowing weakness to remain. He allows it to remain. And the reason why I think we have an issue with this is that we have separated weakness from our journey as if there's nothing to gain from it, as if there's nothing to learn from it. In fact, we'll say something along the lines of life will be better when blank is over. Life will be better when I get a better job. Life will be better when I have kids. Life will be better whenever I get married. Life will be better whenever we own a house. Life will be better whenever we're not in debt. We get in this place where we think if, if we just get out of our circumstance and we allow this weakness to leave, then we're going to be in a better place. We view weakness as a hindrance to our story, not as the story itself. The Apostle Paul knew what it meant to be weak. 
So aside from his everyday beatings he received in casual shipwreck that he, that he had to endure, Paul received a thorn in the flesh, and he begged God no less than three times to remove that thorn from his flesh, but it remained. It remained. We see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 8 through 10. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I wonder, perhaps Paul wondered what his ministry would have been, how much he would have achieved if he had not had this thorn. I wonder about that. Would, would Paul have said something along the lines of, I, how many more missionaries could I have made? How many more churches could I have started? How many more disciples could I have, uh, could I have spoken to? How many more economies could I have shifted over? How far could the gospel have gone had I not had this thorn? But here's the reality. God didn't work in Paul's life despite the thorn. He worked in Paul's life through it. The grace was made sufficient through the suffering, through the pain, through the weakness. Weakness is a part of God's plan. And as we learn from this text, Paul was not alone, but he had the Spirit's help come alongside him. Multiple times throughout the book of Acts, you'll see something happen to Paul. There was one, there was one time that... <laughs> The, I, I love this story because it just encapsulates Paul's character. But he's about to go to this town, and the disciples come to him and say, hey, listen, you need to know that when you go there, they're going to beat you. He, and Paul says, I know, the Spirit told me. It's, it's going to be crazy. You want to come? It, it's, Paul isn't concerned with what's going to happen to him or what kind of weakness is going to come his way because he knows he has the Spirit helping him. He knows he has the Spirit coming alongside him to encourage him, to give him strength, to carry out the mission of the gospel. John Newton, who's a hymnist, said it this way, faith upholds a Christian under all trials by assuring him that every painful dispensation is under the direction of the Lord, that chastisements are a token of his love, that the season, measure, and continuance of his sufferings are appointed by infinite wisdom and designed to work for his everlasting good, and that grace and strength shall be afforded him afforded him according to his need. The Spirit knows what is going to make us like Jesus, that God himself is working all things together for good. All things, not some things, not a few things, all things, both weakness, calamity, triumph, and trial, God is working all of them for your good and his glory. And in the same way, Jesus knew that waiting to la uh, raise Lazarus from the dead would increase faith in the disciples and bring glory to him. Now, what does this mean for us? This means that all the loved ones we have lost, all the trials we experience with friends and or family, and God is using that to draw you to himself. And more than that, he is with you. He's in the middle of it. God doesn't just direct traffic. He's in the car with you. God doesn't just direct you to a place. He walks alongside you. And I think, I think you need to remember that. I think it's important that you do, that God is near to you. Oftentimes we look at, at some kind of trial or circumstance that comes our way and think that God is punishing us. No, friends, that is not punitive. The punishment of the cross was, is done and taken care of. 
by the work of Jesus. You don't have to worry that any suffering that comes your way is done because you did something wrong. But instead, the suffering and weakness that comes our way is a part of the journey. It's a part of the journey and leads us closer to Jesus. There are just some things that are just not going to make sense on this side of heaven. They're just not. In the same way that there are some, there are some times that my kids are not going to understand why I say no. They just don't have the vantage point that I do. They, they can't understand or comprehend why I would ever tell them no. But as a good parent, I know why. And as a good father, God knows why. God knows why things come, come our way and why he allows them. And there are going to be some things that just do not make sense on the side of heaven. But we, we, instead of trying to pretend like we can solve every one of these weaknesses, instead, let us remember that we have a God that helps us, that we have a God that walks alongside us. And we have a God that fills us with the Spirit and encourages us as we walk through these, these daily trials and weaknesses. However, we not only have a God that helps, this leads me to point number two, in our weakness, we have a voice. And verse number 26 says this, For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Notice that it does not say that we don't know how to pray. In fact, Paul even goes a little step further, and he, does, and he gives us the benefit of the doubt, and he assumes that you are praying, which I think is a, for some of us is a big assumption. Uh, Paul assumes that whenever weakness does come our way or, or a trial or suffering does, that we are praying. But he doesn't assume that you aren't, and he also doesn't assume that you don't know how. He's saying that you, um, that you don't know what to pray for. James 4 offers a different perspective on this. Uh, chapter, uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, it says this. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. You spend it on your passions. Now, I know that we're not going to ask James over for Thanksgiving dinner, but a closer examination helps us understand that oftentimes our desires do not align with God's will. Oftentimes what we want doesn't allow for us uh, to uh, doesn't allow for us to walk in light in in the life that God would have us, and out of fear of losing control, we take the seat of God that is meant uh, that we we take the seat that God is meant to have without having His vantage point, and we don't have the same kind of awareness that He does. We don't have the same kind of awareness of what's going on, what's going to happen in the future days. It, it, James chapter four is littered with this this idea that we can't take the seat of God and assume that we know what's best. We can't take the seat of God and say, okay, well, I need, to, um, I need to accomplish blank because if I don't, then everything will go wrong. The truth is, is that God, God is, a, is infinitely more aware than we ever could be. He's, he has an incredible amount of awareness of everything. Could you imagine the awareness of what it means whenever you're outside of time? If you are outside of time and you're not constrained to it, the amount of awareness you have is, is absurd. You know how long things are going to take? You know, if this person uh, sits in this job or sits without kids or um, goes without getting married or whatever that trial may be, that whatever disease or calamity you may be facing, if you're, if you're God and you're outside of time, you know exactly what it means for that person to sit, to grow, for, the, for God's strength to be made in their weakness. But here's the thing that we don't lack. 
We may lack God's, self, uh, God's awareness, but we don't lack self-awareness. Now, our problem is not a lack of understanding. There's a reason why the personality testing business is a $4 billion industry. There's a reason why. Um, it's because we, we like to know about ourselves. We like to dive deep in why we do certain things, why our personalities are the way that we are. It's a gigantic industry. We don't lack self-understanding in that light. I mean, here's the deal. I am, the, I am just as big of a fan of the Enneagram as the next guy. But what doesn't happen is understanding, by and large, does not create peace. I mean, study after study after study, you can go find the, uh, that whenever people get sick, they have a significant drop-off in health once they are aware of it. There are, I mean, how many people have you seen that they live this normal life, everything is okay, they go to the doctor just to get a checkup, only to find out they are constrained by this autoimmune disease or, 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 or sickness that they have, and then all of a sudden their health drops off the cliff. Understanding does not create peace. In fact, if nothing else, it creates chaos. If you're not a believer in the room, think about it this way. We are far more advanced technologically, far more advanced medically than we ever have been. What has that done for sin and suffering? Zero. It has not solved the problem of sin, suffering, and weakness. Understanding, a deeper level of understanding of yourself, the world, biology, whatever, whatever it is that you think that you must know more of, understanding is not going to solve the issue of weakness. It's not going to. It's going to do nothing but create chaos most of the time. Now, Charles Spurgeon said it this way, whenever we try to take the seat of God in our life and and understand everything, to assume that we can have his awareness in the world, what usually follows is anxiety. And he says it this way, anxiety does not empty tomorrow of its sorrows, but only empties today of its strength. When we take the seat of God, anxiety will always follow because we cannot possibly accomplish the same things that he can from, uh, with our vantage point. We can't do what God can do. We don't need more understanding. What we need is an awareness that the Spirit is alongside helping us, giving us a voice that we don't have. And it's in these moments when we are not praying that we, ought, uh, that we ought to remember that the Spirit comes alongside our broken efforts and gives us a voice before God, interceding, interceding for us, realigning our desires. That oftentimes the Spirit is realigning your will with God's will by simply saying no, by simply denying certain requests, by granting others, realigning your will with God's. But sometimes it's much deeper than that. Sometimes it has nothing to do with your passions not lining up. Sometimes it has everything to do with you going through a weakness and you simply don't have words for it. Sometimes we, need to, we just need to know that being, being without words is okay. Because you have a God that gives you a voice. You have a God that groans to God. The spirit that groans to the Father in, in, in your place, interceding for you. Stepping in the gap to make sure that your your case is made. God meets us in the turmoil of our own hearts and the spirit groans to God the Father in the non-language of our own pain. So sometimes we experience pain, weakness, and calamity and we, don't, we just can't get words to say. Have you ever had that? Have you ever had the moment where you just, you feel like you need to pray but you don't know what to say? The spirit knows every movement of the heart. 
knows every movement of your soul and petitions intercedes to God the Father for you. Gives you a voice when you don't feel like you have one. That's an incredible truth that we have to remember. Some of us know keenly aware of what it means to groan, the deep valleys that God really walks us through. And if we don't, uh, then we will, uh, because suffering is a part of our life, and it happens at one point or the other. Uh, but what, what does this mean for us? It means that every sigh, I remember Tim Keller, he's a pastor, he used to say it this way, that we need to pay attention to our sighs. Whether it's that sigh that, you know, mom walks into the room and, and sees that her, the kid's room has been destroyed, and she just sighs. Whether she show up at work and your boss is still a jerk, and you sigh. Whether it's things didn't go your way, and they're a lot more difficult than you expected, expected them to be. Whether it's a doctor coming into the office. Whether it's you pulling up your Chase bank account and realizing there's not enough money to pay the rent. Whatever it may be, that, that sigh. Those are the weaknesses that we have been called to not only lay before God, but that he is committed to walking with us through. He's committed to walking alongside us. Every sigh, every fear that doesn't have a word, every cry of the heart is heard by God. When we don't have a voice, whether it be a misaligned one or whether it's simply non-existent, the Spirit gives us one. But for the believer, we, we have more than help, even though that's true. We have more than a voice, even though that's true. We have one more thing, and it leads me to my final point. In our weakness, we have hope. Verse number 27 says this, And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to to the will of God. Now, what does this mean for us? This means that we have not stopped talking about hope this entire chapter. That in verses 18 through 25, hope is mentioned several times, and he continues on with it. In verse number 21, it says, In hope that the creation itself will be set free. Verse 24, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Verse 26, likewise. He's continuing on that we should continue this level of hope that we have a God that comes alongside us. Just likewise could otherwise be said, just like before, we have this hope that God is for us. That he who searches hearts, so that's God the Father, He searches our heart and is attentive to every need because of the Spirit. God not only knows what we want, but he knows what we need, which is a different different kind of, uh, of knowing. The Spirit's Dwelling into our dwelling in our heart and our soul, aligning in allegiance with God on our behalf is hope. Think about this. You this is a beautiful picture of the Trinity, and you have the entire weight of it for your behalf, on your behalf. The entire weight of the Trinity is helping us in our need. God the Spirit interceding, petitioning to God the Father on the basis of what God the Son has done for you. The entire weight of the Godhead is saying, I'm for you. I'm with you. You're not alone. God himself is in control. And this is one thing that God does not delegate. There are many times you see people in the Bible on behalf of God speaking. This is one thing that God does not dish out. 
God is in control. His hand is on the wheel. He is a good father that gives us good gifts. So it doesn't matter the weakness, trial, or calamity that comes our way. It does not matter because he is a good father with a greater vantage point than we have and is committed to not only helping us, giving us, giving us a voice, but a hope that one day it's gonna end. That the weakness that you experience is not the end. It is part of the means. The weakness that you are going through, whatever it may be, whether job, family, friends, whatever it may be, you are being shaped by it. It's a part of the journey. It's not a hindrance to it. You haven't hit a roadblock. In in many ways, if you are experiencing a, a weakness, it should be a moment for you to pause and ask God, what is he doing? I I have found personally, I didn't say this at nine o'clock, I'm just kind of wrestling with it as I was preparing this, but I have found that it's it's never helpful to ask why. You you can do it, feel free to do it, but when it comes to God's dealings with us, the why question is almost always steeped in pride. It, It assumes that you know better. It assumes that your plan would have been better, that you knew different steps that could have taken. Why did you do this, God? Why? Instead, asking the question, what are you doing? What are you doing to uh, what are you doing here? Show me, make it clear to me what you are trying to teach me. Remind me of hope. Remind me of the faith that I need to believe in you. That, like the centurion, where he looks at Jesus in the gospels and says, I believe, help my unbelief. May that be the cry of each and every one of your hearts. That God would help you in your unbelief. God is in control. He gives us good gifts. And if we stray, the spirit intercedes for us. We need to be reminded that we are not alone. And, and, and I know it's tempting. Um, maybe, maybe you're not like me. But I, I thought about this. I was like, okay, well, if the spirit is interceding on my behalf and he's, uh, he's petitioning God, he's praying to God, he's laying my, uh, my burdens before God, what's the, what's the point of praying? Why should I pray? God's already doing it. It's already taken care of it for me. Why should I do it? But the truth is, is that this should lead us to pray all the more. Think, of, I don't know if you had a chance to watch The Last Dance on Netflix, uh, where it's, it's basically just a Netflix documentary on the Chicago Bulls during their last year together uh, winning a championship. Scottie Pippen on the Chicago Bulls was an incredible basketball player. To say he was underrated is, an, is understatement of the year one of the most incredible players on that team. But do you think he played better or worse when Jordan was on the court? Better. Of course he would. The pressure is no longer on him to to carry on the win. The pressure is no longer him to do everything. He has this transcendent star that's leading the way, and he gets to ride the, the wave that is Michael Jordan. He no longer has to do it alone. So for us as believers, it operates similarly. If we know that the Spirit is realigning our passions, realigning our will with God's will, why should we not pray all the more? Why would we not? Because even if we don't have words, even if we don't get it right, the Spirit is stepping in saying, no, 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 he meant this. No, 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 hold off on that. No, that's your your child. Love him well. It's... That God is interceding on our behalf constantly. The problem, though, is pain, weakness, and trial have a way of sidelining us like nothing else. And in, in the Old Testament, you hear this phrase 
constantly. It's, it's wait on the Lord. Because when we experience uh, trial, calamity, and weakness, we, we think that waiting means stopping, that waiting means pausing. But the Bible has a different, a different perspective on what waiting meant. Waiting was always active. And it, we need to understand that the process of waiting on God to move or resolve, uh, or resolve cannot allow us uh, to roll over and stop fighting, but it should, it should push us to fight even more because we know the Spirit is coming alongside us to help us and give us hope. It should resolve us to fight, uh, fight longer, fight harder. And it's vital to understand that waiting is not an interruption of God's plan. It is his plan. Constantly throughout the Bible, you have waiting. You have Abraham waiting for his child for years. You have the people of God waiting for the Messiah to return. And even now to this day, you have us waiting for Jesus to come back. The waiting is always a part of the plan. It always was. It's not an interruption. And you can know this as well, that the Lord who called you to wait is with you in your wait. He hasn't gone off to do something else like a doctor does whenever you're waiting to see him. For me, uh, my, whenever I take my son to the doctor, we, we get ushered into this cold, really bright room, and I'm going to have to wait for God knows how long until he gets there. Uh, especially if you go to the emergency room. You're just going just gonna to wait there forever. But I don't know when they're going to come. I don't know what they're going to do. I don't know what they're going to say. I, I, it could be forever. He's certainly not in the room with me where I'd be solving this problem. God is not like that. When God asks you to wait, he's with you. When God asks you to wait, he's alongside you, encouraging you, filling you with the spirit, providing hope for you. God is near to you and provides all that you need to be able to wait. So for the believer, there are two things that are simultaneously true. And I know that's controversial because right now in our, the current climate in our culture, uh, you have to either believe one thing or believe the other. Uh, there's no middle line. Our culture wants to draw um, draw a line in the sand, and you're either for something or against something. But oftentimes, it's not, it's not that simple. In fact, I would say most times it is, especially when people are involved. It's just not that simple. And so for us as believers, there are two things that are simultaneously true. The first is that weakness, trial, and pain are very real. That's we're not going to deny that. We're not going to ignore it. We're not going to sweep it under the rug. Pain, trial, and suffering and weakness is very real. It should be taken seriously. The second one that is simultaneously true, God the Spirit is helping you, giving you a voice, and providing hope to you in a broken world. Both of those things are true. It's not simple, it's not simple enough to say, oh, well, if this is happening, then God must not be around. It's also not simple enough to say, oh, well, if God's here, then we don't have to worry about it. No, both things are true. You can experience weakness and God can be a helper. Both things are true. God is committed to you as his children. And the good news is, is that we may not have the vantage point that God does, but we do have the vantage point on this side of history to know how the story ends. We do have the vantage point to know that the tomb is empty and that the the punishment of sin is no longer applicable to us. We do know that Jesus will return and restore all things to make new and remove all suffering, remove all weakness, remove all trial. He will do that. We know that. We know how the story ends. And so whenever I think about this for, what, uh, for this Sunday morning as we worship God, 
I thought about several different ways that, uh, that I could end this, uh, end this sermon. And there are a bunch of different avenues, but the one that I, that I really chose and thought would be helpful is, uh, is, and if you would allow me, is to read Psalm 23 over you. It's one of the most beautiful texts that, that we could possibly have as a believer, and it reminds us of how the Lord interacts with us in our weakness. So if you'll stand, I'll read this over us. Psalm 23 says this. The Lord is my shepherd. And, and brothers and sisters, as I read this, I, I, I'm going to intentionally pause. I'm not going to hide that from you. I'm going to intentionally pause and repeat certain things so that way you hear it. Because this is such a popular text, it, it's very easy just to recite it by mind or, or just read over it because you've heard it a million times. But I want this to sink deep into your soul and may it be an anchor for you today, this week, and as you go on about your day. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Some texts say, I have all that I need. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, surely, as in let it be so, it is guaranteed. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, even through the valley of the shadow of death. Even through the valley of the shadow of death, that is God's mercy on you. Surely mercy shall follow you all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Would you pray with me? Father God, we, we come before you and we lay our lives at your feet. We don't assume the throne. We are thankful, God, that we have all that we need in you. We're thankful, God, that in times that we don't know how to stop, pause, that you, you teach us, that you show us how to. God, we love that even though there may be trial, weakness, and calamity that comes to our life, that you are with us, that you have not abandoned us, and that you will walk alongside us. God, we are thankful that you are not just a God that directs traffic, but that you sit in the car with us. We love that you are in control. And so, God, this morning, as we lay our lives, weakness, trial, and triumph before you, we pray that you would remind us how good you are and that we can trust uh, in your goodness all the days of our life. It's, in, it's your beautiful name we pray. Amen.